Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hadley and welcome to another edition of the Viewfinder Podcast. For those who listened to my interview with Mill Friend star and creator Judy Jean Kwan on our last show, I prefaced it by saying in my opening tease for that interview that some of the best scripted series give audiences a greater understanding of real-world problems through the fictional yet realistic characters who experience those problems. While Milfriend humorously tackles the always relevant issues of neighborhood gentrification, young motherhood, and the social class differences between diverse communities and their upscale white peers. The subject of this week's podcast, the award-winning drama Black on Both Sides, is another outstanding example of episodic storytelling that fearlessly takes on the biggest problem that America has faced since the country's founding, racism. Although racism victimizes black Americans through senseless violence, societal division, coded yet thinly veiled bigotry, voter suppression, and vile political rhetoric, it also forces blacks in the corporate world to take on a double identity that forces them to act in a way that whites will supposedly find acceptable while simultaneously being inauthentic to themselves. It's a dangerous tightrope straddled by a young professional named Anansi Moore, the lead character of Black on Both Sides, now in its second season and streaming exclusively on the web series platform Sika TV. Alanjay Hawes, who created Black on Both Sides and plays the role of Anansi Moore in the series, is my guest on this week's Viewfinder podcast. I had the honor of speaking with him on an earlier episode of the show when he joined me to talk about season one of Black on Both Sides, and I am equally honored to have him join me once again to discuss season two of the series. As you are about to hear from Alange, this season of Black on Both Sides is more than a story of young black Americans fighting for personal and economic freedom. As he tells me, it's a story that, while fictionalized, truthfully exposes the continued injustices black Americans face every day. Given the amplification of racism in a falsely labeled post-racial society, Black on Both Sides is an urgent reminder of this uncomfortable reality, one that will hopefully motivate audiences of all backgrounds to take a stand against injustice. In my opinion, Black on Both Sides is the most important series you'll see anywhere today. Stay tuned and find out why from Alange Hawes, now on this week's Viewfinder Podcast. Alange, thank you so much for coming on the Viewfinder podcast to talk about season two of Black on Both Sides. It's a great show, and it's only gotten better in season two. I really appreciate you coming on. For those unfamiliar with Black on Both Sides, what is the show about, and could you tell us more about the character you portray in it, Anansi Moore? Well, Black on Both Sides for the Uninitiated is a series centered around really the practice of code switching. Um, Now, what code switching is, it's a practice that uh, many African Americans and really just black people across the diaspora, but mostly African-Americans have adopted. Um, It allows us to take on a persona that makes us acceptable to white America. Um, And that's especially within the workplace, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we dress, even the way we move. It's a carefully curated act designed to disarm our white bosses and coworkers. Um, The way I describe it is it's it's reverse blackface. Uh, But instead of being designed to entertain, it's really an act of survival. You know, if you want that promotion, if you even want to get in the door to get that interview, you know, you have to take on a certain persona that's going to allow you to be acceptable to the white gaze and the white mind. Um, and my character, Anansi, um, he's basically 
he's he's taught himself how to become a master of that act of code switching. And he's doing it because he has a specific goal in mind of what he's trying to accomplish. It's not really about the job for him. It's about something much deeper and much more. And that's really the the kind of the, the, the mystery that unfolds within season one. And then at the beginning of season two, you see that his 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 motivations are kind of shifting. They're kind of changing from something that was really simple uh, to something that's much more complex. Let's talk more about season two and what viewers can expect to see in it. Well, really, the second season, Find the Nazi, dealing with the fallout from his actions from season one. Um, that uh, he and his cohorts, they've been essentially they've been running a fraudulent criminal enterprise right underneath the the nose of their bosses. Um, at their job, which is Legacy Wireless. Legacy Wireless is kind of like a routine, um, retail-based, uh, think kind of like a uh, like a Verizon or AT&T mobile store, or even if you think of like a, a, a Best Buy or Target type of retail environment. And, and they've been kind of running a fraudulent, you know, enterprise within that job. And so in season two, um, Anansi kind of has to keep one step ahead um, because now... He's kind of under suspicion because of the events of season one. So he's kind of under suspicion, and he's trying to reingratiate himself to the into the uh, good graces of his bosses. But now also he's kind of being thrust into the spotlight because he's trying to be more vocal um, regarding social justice within the black community. So all of season one, he was very comfortable playing the background. Now he's kind of being thrust into the forefront, so he's trying to juggle both. And being thrust into the foreground is part of what he's doing with the company that he's created. Correct. Yeah, the company he's created is called um, Sankofa Industries. And really, Sankofa Industries is a company um, that was more geared towards uh, black economic empowerment. It was a dream of his father's. And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to carry on his father's legacy and create something for the black community. And he's funding it through the the, the, the fraudulent criminal enterprise that he's running through Legacy Wireless. So it's kind of a duality. So what I was really trying to show is I was trying to show, really, when you take a group of dis- of historically disenfranchised people... And they feel like they're at their wit's end, especially when they when they wake up to a world that continually is showing them that they are less than human, that they are not valued, and that their contributions to society aren't valued. It's really showing you what is going to happen when some people have said that they've had enough. It's not always going to be something violent. It's not always going to be something that's in your face. You know, it, it's going to be something that, you know, you never would have thought of. Of course, this series has not only won critical acclaim and awards, but... It has also taken on greater importance because of the continuing police-perpetrated violence against unarmed black Americans and the ongoing protests that we've seen against such violence. Discuss how Black on Both Sides addresses both of those critical issues through the storyline and characters presented in Season 2. Well, I'll be honest, um, what, what, really makes me, what really makes me upset and, and really, really kind of makes me take pause and, and really have to reflect on certain things is the fact that um, I feel like black on both sides is 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 too relevant to what's going on in modern day society. Um, season one was really born of you know specific trauma when we see so many black men and women accosted by police and you know murdered. Philando Castillo, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, Terrence Crutcher, um, and so so many others. You know that was going on you know two and a half almost three years ago when these instances took place, and now today you know we're going through pretty much the same thing just on a much more progressive level. And so when I, season two was built on um, really just one specific incident, which was the um, the um, the Botham John case and the Botham John case, people that don't remember, was the young man who was in his home, you know, by himself, minding his own business. And a cop came in and shot him dead, just came into his home and shot him. 
and said that she felt that, you know, he was intruding into her home. Somehow she walked into the wrong apartment and the young man ended up dead. And so that, that really struck me and that really kind of that traumatized not only me, but, you know, a lot of people within the black community. It was really honestly, it was just a, it was really just the whole thing was just a huge slap in the face to black people. And um, so I really created season two based off that premise. And then, you know, just a year and a half later, we're looking at George Floyd and we're looking at, you know, Breonna Taylor and we're looking at, you know, Elijah McClain and we're looking at so many other Ahmaud Arbery. And we're looking at so many other black people. I can just name so many. So it's like it's it's too relevant uh, to me. And it just it, in some ways it really horrifies me. And so it, it's it's really honestly it's like I don't know. It's like it's like I really wish that a show like this could really be more of a uh, of a cautionary tale of what happened, of what has been more so than a, than really just showing the truth of what's going on now, because it's really showing that the progress that we feel like we keep making is like one step forward and four steps back. What are some of the other major issues that you examine in the second season and how is the show itself helping people, especially white Americans? to better understand the problems that continue to affect black Americans today? Well, season two, it, from when I sat down and, and really wanted to start writing it and conceptualizing it, um, really what I want to do is I want to examine the psyche, you know, of the black populace across the diaspora who just kind of had enough. You know, there's only so much systemic trauma that a group of people can experience before the pipelines burst. And season two is kind of showing the, the slow progression of those pipelines bursting for the, this specific group of protagonists. You know, I'm really trying to put across how I how I feel like, you know, the sense of dread that really comes with, you know, just having darker skin kind of manifests itself. And and when it comes to, to white America, um, again, just being 100 percent honest, um, I I don't know. You know, there there have been over 300 years of education regarding race relations for white America. So, you know, I, I, there are those that get it. And there are those that don't get it. And it to me, it's just that cut and dry. Um I really wish, I, I hope that the white Americans who do get it and, and watch the show would be spurred to help with further change. And the ones that don't get it, I mean, there's really nothing. Honestly, I don't really know what more, you know, black people can do to, to say, hey, there's a problem here. I don't know what more can be shown. I don't know how many more deaths need to be broadcast live on TV. I don't know how many more men need to be choked. I don't know how much more longer they need to be choked for. I don't know how many more black women need to be killed or shot within their own home when they were doing absolutely nothing. I don't really know what more we can do for those that don't get it. Honestly, it's really just to those that do get it to, to spur us to, to, to better, further change. And at the same time, for the white characters, I mean, it seems that they're just, you know, they don't really get it. You know, they don't understand what Anansi and the other characters are going through. They're just, they're in it basically to retain power. Right, correct. And, and, and let me make it specifically clear. Um, a lot of these characters are based upon, you know, people that I've come across and known in real life. This is not indicative of the entirety of white America. Um, but right. it is indicative of a specific portion who do have power, um, don't want to feel as if they're losing power. And so they, they cling to that power. And what they do is they're really just honestly, they're just tricking themselves. Honestly, they're just it's like it's like trying to wake up somebody who's pretending to be asleep. You know, what they're doing is they, they realize that there's an issue, but they're psychologically telling themselves that it can't be that bad in order to maintain a sense of their own privilege. When really what they don't understand is that to 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 share power to give people of a different type of you know economic background to give people of a different type of race 
or culture or creed or religion to give them and to have a seat at that table together would only make, you know, a better America for everyone. You know, we're not talking about, you know, just giving somebody something that they didn't earn and then you're, you're sacrificing what you've worked for. No, we're talking about ending a system that was designed to only help a specific group of people and a specific economic class. That's what we're talking about. That way, once you have true equality, then you have what America was supposed to be built upon. We're talking about, you know, there are certain segments, not everybody, of course, that's talking about making America great again. And there's another segment that says America was never great. You know, and I feel like, you know, the side that feels like America was never great, if, if they were taken seriously, if their thoughts and their issues were taken seriously, we really could make America what it should be, what it should have been in the first place. I still believe that there are a lot of things that America can improve upon, especially in the way it treats not just black Americans, but also all minorities. The deck has been stacked against them for such a long time, and it's, I mean, they have gotten several major rights, but it just doesn't seem like it's getting to full equality, you know? Right, because w what it feels like is it feels like a lot of these these rights or it feels like a lot of these, um, these, these things that are taking place, it feels like window dressing. It doesn't feel like actual change is taking place. And, and really, honestly, that's the problem. That's the problem. And it's funny because, you know, some of the, my, my, the white actors who portray the characters, um, he's, they're actually really good, you know, they're really good people. Um, you know, Scott Peeler, who plays Cyrus, the main kind of antagonist of the series, you know, he tells me how hard it is for him to play, you know, a character like Cyrus. And, and really he has to kind of, he really has to kind of method act in a way in order to get into the character. And he talks about how, how, how uncomfortable it is. And I'm telling, and I tell him, you know, I'm like, look, it, it, as uncomfortable it is for you, imagine how uncomfortable it is for me to have worked with, known, you know, be 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 up under in a in a in a job, uh, an individual like that. Talk about how, if at all, the subjects that Black on both sides examines across both of its seasons have impacted you personally, and how, if at all, your personal experiences have influenced the dramatic arcs and storylines of the series. Well, for me, it's, it's, it can be very therapeutic for me. It can be very therapeutic because there's a lot of frustration, you know, and anger because a lot of these situations are coming from real life situations that not only myself have experienced firsthand, but, you know, other people that I've known have experienced and told me about, you know, and there's, there's, a, cer there's a certain level of frustration that comes with that. So being able to, you know, put it in a script and rehearse it, act it, kind of get it off your chest in a way it, it helps. You know, it really helps me, and I feel like in, in, in certain ways it helps some of the, the actors, you know, who, who have been through similar situations. Um, and, and honestly, really, it, it helps me to come to grips with, with what it means to be black in America, but also knowing that I do have a voice. You know, there is a, there is a means in America for, you know, black men and women, black people to put out there how we feel and to put it out there, it may be, you know, fictionalized, fictionalized drama the way I do it. Um, it may be nonfiction, you know, it may be speeches, it may be protests and marching and, you know, things of that nature. But, you know, there is an avenue for us to to get our feelings out. You know, I've been in so many situations where, you know, white people have felt comfortable enough to tell me, you know, that I don't act black because I speak a certain way or I'm a credit to my race. They wish the rest of us could just get over slavery and work hard. You know, they don't understand that the only thing separating me from the rest of my black coworkers is that, you know, I chose to play this game 
in a way to get more of us in the door. You know, when, when more of us are in the door, you know, we can influence change. But, you know, there's a certain segment, you know, black people that aren't, that aren't going to play that game because they shouldn't. Honestly, they shouldn't have to play that game. We're not talking about being disrespectful. We're not talking about being unprofessional. We're talking about being allowed to utilize your own unique voice and your own unique personality to further enhance that of the company, you know, to learn from challenge and change. You know, that's what real diversity is. You know, so though, to me, they're the real heroes, you know, the ones that refuse and, and have to take on certain economic hardships because, you know, they refuse to, you know, honestly, really, I mean, you know, put on a top hat and, and some shoes and start, you know, tap dancing. That's really what it is. It's just a tap dance routine. And so just being able to put all that out there and to, to have my voice be heard, to me, it's very therapeutic and, and it really helps. In what ways do those stories impact not just the storylines you conceive for season two of Black on Both Sides, but also the production process of the show? Well, for one, it's, it's, it's about not just talking about it, but being about it. So for me, um, my production crew is 100% Black. You know, I have a, a Black cinematographer. His name is Asante Watkins. Um, we have a Black sound editor, Justin Lovett. Um, my producing team um, that helps me with uh, pre-production and post-production are Black. Um, Shout-outs to Cordero Sanders, Roderick Fed, my sister Shawnee. Um, and Jamal McClendon for always, you know, being in my corner and really helping me. Shouts to my friend uh, Sheldon Carter as well for always, you know, helping me and, and kind of being in my corner. Um, you know, and I really just want to be a lot of the, the actors that we utilize are first time actors. And I really just want to be, you know, a conduit to people being able to show off their their talents, you know, and being able to, you know, black folks being able to show what they're really about, you know, so you know, for me, it's impacting being able to on the ground floor, being able to take people that I know are talented that otherwise wouldn't be given the opportunity, you know, and give them a platform to say, this is who I am. This is what I can do. And then utilize it as a springboard to do greater things. Of course, the COVID-19 pandemic has also impacted the filmmaking industry and its regular pace of production. How was Black on Both Sides affected by it? And what did you and your team do to adjust to the safety guidelines necessitated by this pandemic? Well, we started in, we started filming in, I want to say, I believe we started filming in February, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we started filming in February before uh, COVID hit really hard, before really anybody really knew what it was, when, when everybody was saying it's just kind of like the flu and it'll just go away, it's nothing to worry about. So we started in February and uh, by March, they shut everything down. And when they shut everything down, they shut, you know, I'm in Atlanta, so they shut the city down. And when they shut the city down, of course, you know, we shut production down. And honestly, it was, it was kind of, um, it was just scary all around. It was really scary because not only, we're not, even, we're not talking, we're not just talking about creative endeavors. We're talking about people's lives and people are, are, are getting sick and dying of, of really just what at the time was a mystery disease. People didn't, there wasn't really no, there was really no information that could give people, let people say, do this, do that. It was really just stay inside and hope for the best. So we shut down production for three months. And so we lost, you know, three months worth of, of filming. And uh, I had been contracted to um, to create a new series from another company. And the original goal was we had really just been working like a well-oiled machine through the last three years. We knew, you know, we knew each other. We knew exactly what we needed to do. There was a process that we had created. And so we were going to shoot, I was really going to shoot Black on Both Sides Season 2 in this new series back to back. You know, one month we were going to do this, then the next month we were going to do that. And, you know, COVID just kind of wiped all that out. So when we actually did get, were able to get back into production, I had to focus on Black on Both Sides because we already had a set firm release date uh, with Seeker TV. 
So when we came back, you know, we set guidelines in place. You know, masks were mandatory in between takes. You know, everybody was really good on wearing masks. Um, I made sure we had hand sanitizer on hand for everybody. Um, and then uh, one story was, you know, we were set to film in a hotel, a really fancy hotel in Atlanta. And uh, before I even, before an hour and a half before anybody showed up, you know, I went to the room and, and wiped everything down myself with, you know, Lysol. And when we were filming, you know, the whole room smelled like bleach and Lysol. So that it was kind of a funny that was kind of a funny little anecdote, but uh, yeah, um, COVID did impact it significantly, but it didn't stop us, um, which I'm very, very grateful for. Of course, we mentioned Sika TV the last time that you were on, and of course, Black on Both Sides is exclusively on that platform, and George Reese, the CEO of Sika TV, is also a producer on the show. How has that partnership benefited not only Black on Both Sides, but also your career as an actor and filmmaker and those of your cast and crew? The belief that Seeker TV has really shown to me has has really meant everything to me. I mean, honestly, when my first series, Black on, I mean, Blue Collar Hustle, my very first series that I created, it was my first time doing anything. It was my first time writing a script. It was my first time acting. It was my first time producing, directing, really anything. It was my first time doing. And and Seeker TV picked us up, you know, when we only had three episodes out. And they really showed a lot of faith in the show, and they showed a lot of faith in me. You know, they took us from from YouTube to Seeker you know, almost immediately, you know, I submitted, I remember submitting it to them and they were saying, you know, you need to have, you know, maybe like four or five episodes. And I only had three and I was really just kind of taking a leap of faith. And, you know, George um, contacted me and he said, Hey, I really love what you got going on. And we, you know, we'd love to have you as part of Sika. And not only that, they really made blue collar hustle um, a big part of their marketing and promotion initiative. You know, when they were marketing, promoting Sika TV, you know, you have, a, there was a lot of blue collar hustle, you know, paraphernalia and you know they did a lot of interviews with me and, and kind of put me out there so them showing faith in me was the first kind of validation that i got in a in the professional industry that said that you know this is something that you're supposed to be doing so when it came time to do blue i mean black on both sides i'm sorry when it came down to black on both sides i pitched it to you know george and sika first and you know they almost immediately greenlit it you know it, i think we negotiated and it wasn't really a negotiation it was it was more of a um we collaborated on things like, you know, budget and, you know, when we should release it and promotion and marketing. So it really wasn't negotiation. It was more of a collaboration that we kind of went together on. And when it came to Black on Both Sides, they were like, yeah, let's do it. They were like, let's do it. You know, I sent them an outline and, and immediately Georgia was like, you got it. Whatever we can do to help, we'll do it. So I really love working with Sika. I love George. And, you know, I hope to continue working with them on future endeavors. You've already aired the first five episodes of season two on Sika and the next three are coming soon. When? You said when? Yeah, um, when are the next... You've already aired the first five episodes of season two of Black on Both Sides on Sika. When are the next three coming? Um, episode six um, will probably... Will more than likely... Um, we're trying to do a... We're trying to do a two-week minimum. Um, so first week in November for episode six. Um, and then around the 15th for episode seven. And then, pro- and then the end of November for um, episode eight. So we're trying to do two weeks' time. Um, that's why I put out the first five um, for the streamers. And then the last three, you know, kind of to, you know, build a promotion and, and hype and things of nature. We're actually, uh, I was actually in uh, post-production. We were editing episode six on Tuesday, me and Asante, and everything looks really good. We were editing six and seven. And everything looks really good. And, you know, I think that um, the audience is really going to enjoy the conclusion that we have set up. From everything I've seen, not just from season one, but also season two and what you've got so far, I believe that Black on Both Sides is truly the most important web series 
streaming right now, given all that's happening and all the people are dealing with in this country. I really believe that. All of you have done such an amazing job putting it together, and it's, it's something that a lot of people should check out. Thank you. Thank you very much. Are there any further seasons planned for Black on Both Sides? And if so, what plans do you have to continue the series? Uh, Black on Both Sides was always was always kind of um, conceptualized by myself to to be kind of a two season series. Um, I'm not really I'm not honestly I'm not really one to try to force something or continue something just because it's been successful. Um, I'm I'm a really really big um, purveyor of everything that has a beginning has an end. Um, that's something that I read um, a while ago when I was reading an interview by Donald Glover, and he was saying like, like you know, everything has a beginning, it has its meaning, and it, and it has its natural conclusion. So for for Black on both sides, I feel like with season two, um, we have a really really good conclusion to a Nazi story, and you know, you you never say never. Um, however, there are other projects and there are other endeavors that I'm that I want to work on um, as an independent filmmaker. You have to be really well aware, and it's, it's painful sometimes. You have to be painfully aware that. You know, your shelf life can be, you know, long or it can be abruptly cut short. Financing is always something that is, is it's an issue. It's always something that, you know, kind of keeps me up at night. <laughs> just like, you know, how are we going to get this done? How are we going to get that done? We've been really successful over the past couple of years of, you know, continuing this thing that we've built. But, um, you know, there are other projects, um, specifically the one with uh, Gerald Media um, that I'm that I'm going to be um, doing. And there are other, you know, things in the future that I want to do while, I, you know, while my time is now, you know, while I know I have the, the, the financial freedom um, to pursue these projects. Um, you know, I really want to have a, a versatile portfolio when it's all said and done. I don't want my legacy to just have been one thing. You know, Blue Collar Hustle could have easily been like five seasons. We could have drawn that out. But I knew creatively it was time to do something different, especially with the times, like you said, that we were in and with Black on both sides. I feel like we've made a a really good statement on the times today. And, you know, I've been very, very, you know, fortunate that, you know, over the past three to four years, I've written 32 scripts and all 32 of them have been produced. You know, not a lot of independent filmmakers can say that. So I'm very grateful for what we've done. And I'm excited to I'm excited for the audience to see what we have going forward. As for that project with Jaro Media, are there any details you can share with us about that? And if so, how far along is it in the development stage? Um, I'm really, really excited for this project. I, I wish we wish you and me should be having this conversation about this project right now for the simple fact that, you know, if, if, if it wasn't for COVID, I, it would be almost done by now. But we had to kind of push it back. So it will come out in 2021. Um, it, is an, it is a series, an episodic series. Um, it'll be uh, 10 episodes. Um, and I will say, um, I can't give you the title or anything yet, but I, I will say that uh, it's completely different from anything that I've done before. Um, I'm a very, uh, I'm a very big fan of kind of like a noir. Um, I, I'm a very big fan. There's an anime called Cowboy Bebop. And um, everybody knows the, the Bonnie and Clyde story. So if you were to take the style of the anime Cowboy Bebop and you were to take this, the Bonnie and Clyde kind of like, you know, the, the mythologized, not the real, but the mythologized kind of story of Bonnie and Clyde and put them together, um, that's kind of what you would get with this new series I'm working on. And, you know, Richard Devon, who's the uh, CEO and the founder of General Media, has been has been great. He's been excellent. He's always been a, uh, a really big uh, supporter of mine. He's been a big fan of my work. And so he just really gave me an opportunity, you know, to have this opportunity to, to kind of tell this story that's been brewing in my head for a long time. And, 
you know, shout out to uh, my frequent collaborator, Quentin Williams. He's um, starred in pretty much um, everything that I've done so far. He was, uh, you know, the, the main star of uh, Blue Collar Hustle. And he was uh, he was in Black on Both Sides. He played Saul Matthews. And uh, he'll be the lead in, in this one. And um, it's going to be I think it's going to be fun. Um, and that's that's all I can say for right now. Uh, but stay tuned. It's coming. 2021 is coming. Well, I look forward to watching that. And by all means, please come back on the Viewfinder podcast to talk about it when you have more information. I will. I can't wait. I definitely will. Finally, given this incredibly difficult time we're all living through and the urgency of both the social justice issues that America is confronting and the importance of this year's election, what do you hope viewers of Black on Both Sides take away from seeing the show and its depiction of the real-life problems that affect today's society? I really hope that people are affected to the point where they you know, actually want to do something to make real change. You know, I feel that, honestly, Black on Both Sides shouldn't have to exist. You know, like as a creator, I feel like I should be making the next, you know, Star Wars. I should be making the next Game of Thrones, the next Black James Bond, you know, something stylish, fun, something, you know, that I can escape to, that that the audience can escape to. Something that, you know, would be that everyone could really just have a good time watching. But I have a responsibility as a black creative to tell the truth. And the truth that the truth right now is that escapism isn't fun. You know, escapism is almost impossible for all of us right now. You know, those in the black community and those, you know, from any other community, you know, I have to tell the truth. And the truth is raw. It's ugly. It's painful. It needs to be told. And at the end of the day, I'm a black man of the black community um, in America. And I I, I can't in good conscience bury that story. I can't in good conscience bury that experience because then I'd be living a lie as a creative. And, you know, I, I, I got I got into the business, this business, to free myself as a creative. So that's what I'm doing right now with, with Black on Both Sides. Alanjay Hawes is the star and creator of Black on Both Sides, which you can watch exclusively on Sika TV. Alanjay, thank you so much for coming back to the Viewfinder podcast to talk about season two of the show. I really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best with everything going forward, not just with Black on Both Sides, but with all of your creative projects. I appreciate you. Thank you very much. You were one of the first. I, I was. Um, I know I've said this before, but um, I was so excited uh, when Snobby Robot, you know, uh, featured us, you know, for Blue Collar Hustle for, uh, you know, seasons one and two. I was so excited because, you know, you guys were like, you guys were like it for web series. It was like if, if Snobby Robot likes what you're doing, then you have something, you know. And so I, I was so nervous the first time when I reached out because I was like, oh, my God, this sucks. Like. This is gonna be the end of my career. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you guys, not robot is like is like um, you're like the Rolling Stone. You know, like you know the musicians have Rolling Stone and like rappers. At one time, we had the uh, they had the Source and Double XL. You know, and, and, yeah. and you know um, um, actors have like you know Variety and, and and Deadline and all that. Like, Snobby Robot is that to us in the web series community. So you know when you wrote back and said, "Yeah, I'd love to do a feature," and I like the show and I like everything you're doing. I was like, "Oh, thank God!" I was like, "I was literally like, thank God." You know, I had like three thank God moments in my life when it comes to, you know, being creative. It was the first time I saw the very first episode of Blue Collar Hustle, and it didn't look like crap. I was I was just like, "Oh, thank God!" <laughs> and when you know Seeker TV reached out and 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 brought us on board, and when Snobby Robot um, did that first feature, you know that those are things that let me know that. I was on the right path and that, you know, I had a I had a spot, you know, in the in the creative, you know, independent filmmaking community. So thank you. You're very welcome. And it's my pleasure, as always. And I know 
Eric Ertz, the editor of Snobby Robot, feels the same way. I'm sure he does. As if you find a podcast for this week, I'm Chris Hadley. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, please stay safe, stay healthy, and stay put.